I was talking to uh, a member of the congregation last week, and we were just discussing about how over the last few weeks our nation has been rocked with yet another series of mass shootings. Uh, We were talking about how on November 22nd, a Walmart manager who had been with the company for 12 years opened fire, killing six people before turning the gun on himself. A few days before that, it just felt like a, just a, a whole cluster of them. A few days earlier, a gunman opened fire in an LGBTQ club in Colorado Springs, killing five people and wounding many, many more. Less than a week before that, a gunman killed three football players at the University of Virginia. I know the big one in a lot of people's minds is earlier this year, the nation watched with heartbreak a- after a gunman killed nearly two dozen children and teachers at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. And it shows us that these tragedies can happen anywhere. Out running errands, at a bar grabbing drinks with friends, trying to learn in the classroom, it feels that nowhere is safe. When tragedies like these occur, there is this cry of lament that's often heard in the church. It's a cry that says, Maranatha. I don't know if you've heard that word before. It's a Greek word that comes from 1 Corinthians 16, 22. And it's a, it's a cry of desperation. A cry of, our Lord, come. When acts of unthinkable violence occur, when the most vulnerable are killed, words can't express the pain and suffering that ensues. It's just in recent history here in our country. Elsewhere in the world, there's plenty of suffering to go around for months. Many Americans were glued to the news regarding the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, uh, but now that's old news. I, I find that many media outlets have retired it from their front page, but the conflict persists. Leading up to Tuesday's World Cup match between the United States and Iran, it brought social media battles, awareness to protests that many Iranians have over the current government. And these protests are over the death of Mahsa Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish woman who died while in police custody after being arrested from attending an anti-hijab protest. Violence is everywhere. In 2003, journalist Chris Hedges researched 3,400 years of world history to kind of track the trends of violence and war. And he defined war this way. War is an active conflict that claimed more than a thousand lives. And over the 3,400 years that he studied, he found only 268 years that were war-free. 92% of the last few millennia have been marked with war and human casualties. Now, I share all of this because Advent is a time of waiting the time where we acknowledge that things aren't the way that they should be, and we're waiting for God to set things right. Now, last week, we looked at the hope that Jesus brought with his first coming, but also the hope that we continue to hold on to as we wait for his second coming, his second advent. And so this morning, as we consider this this Advent wreath, this kind of church liturgical, traditional symbol that walks us through the season of of, of Advent, reminds us of that second candle, the candle of peace. Isaiah 9, 6 gives us the identity and characteristics of the coming Messiah. It says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Many of you have probably heard this before. 
and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In an era of such violent conflict, our hearts yearn for peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. That that Hebrew word that is translated peace comes from the word shalom in Hebrew. Now, unfortunately, in a lot of our English translations, when we translate the word shalom into the English word peace, it loses some of its meaning. Because when we talk about peace in our society, the usual connotation is an absence of war. We mean an absence of conflict. But the word shalom carries with it this this images of wholeness, of welfare, of restoration. The created order being restored back to the way that it ought to have been. And so this is far more than just two parties that have ceased their fighting. In marital discord, shalom is not just a ceasefire where each spouse stops arguing. But it's a deeper dive of them together into intimacy. Shalom, as it refers to the school dynamics, doesn't just mean that the awkward kid stops getting picked on, but that they find inclusion and they find a place to belong. Shalom doesn't just mean that unarmed people of color stopped getting killed by police, but that this whole system of fear the other is unlearned in our society. Listen to the way that Isaiah gives imagery to this concept. This comes from Isaiah 35. I'm going to read it in its entirety. It's 10 verses long. It says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with a recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall be long to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighings shall flee away. I think that's actually part of, uh, this is a, a, a tangent, but um, I don't, many of you may know the band Mumford and & Sons, and 
they're not a Christian band, but the lead singer, he, he's got a lot of exposure to the church. And I think even their album, Sigh No More, I think comes from this. It's rooted in this hope that this gives. Because right? the peace that shalom brings with it is healing. We see in this passage environmental healing. Right? The desert blooms, and it blooms abundantly. Right? Verses 1 through 2. There's emotional healing. In verse 4, those who find themselves in the midst of anxiety will be strengthened by God. There is bodily healing. The eyes of the blind are open. The lame are going to leap like a deer. Think of that imagery, right? Frolicking those who were not able to walk. There's spiritual healing. Verse 8 and following describe the way of holiness, the way of of God's path, which is safe and brings flourishing. Now, one of the things that we read in the Old Testament is we, we see that God bringing his peace, but that he brings his peace, his shalom, through justice. In fact, in Hebrew, there's a very strong linguistic link between the word for justice, which is sadiq, and righteousness, sadaka. Hopefully you can hear that, that kind of tz, d, k sound. Right? That's the root of both of those words. The vowels just change. God's desire to bring peace and holiness is not through authoritarian means, right? God's not looking to establish a totalitarian state where everyone's too scared to step out of line, and so they behave in a certain way, right? It was Teddy Roosevelt who said of his foreign policy, speak softly and carry a big stick, right? As long as our stick is bigger than everyone else's, then we're going to have peace. But peace from God's perspective doesn't mean just, you know, invoking fear in people's lives. It's not just standing between foreign powers so that they don't fight. It means a transformation of the conditions that led to war in the first place. Isaiah, again, gives a beautiful picture. Isaiah is just rich with this, this future hope uh, um, of, these, these, of what the state of peace looks like. Isaiah 2, 2-4 to four says this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord shall be established as the highest mountains and shall be lifted above the hills. Again, I don't think that's meant to be understood in a you know, geographically literal perspective, but that it's one of preeminence. Right? That mountain of God of Israel, of Jerusalem, is above all of the other nations. All the nations shall flow to it. It's like a beacon. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Right? Notice that there's restoration, there's redemption and change of behavior, sanctification of them. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes between many people. And look at the result of this. And they shall beat their sores into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. I mean, check that out. The nations take their instruments of war, and they don't just lay them down. Right? That, that would be a, a positive ending. They're just kind of putting their, casting their weapons aside. But this isn't just a ceasefire where they disarm themselves. They take those weapons, and they refashion them into tools that bring flourishing. It's an acknowledgement that those weapons won't be necessary any longer. 
so you can adaptively reuse them for something else. It's not like us just saying, all right, we're not going to use our nuclear arsenal anymore, but finding ways to take that, I don't know how, but hey, it's God's kingdom, taking that nuclear arsenal and refashioning it into something that brings maybe giant planters of soil, I don't know. Right? Sun Tzu's The Art of War won't be regular reading material in the kingdom that God is going to bring. These nations come to God to walk on his path, to, res- to, to receive his judgments and settle their disputes so that conflict is a thing of the past. Now, we're not there yet. Right? This is a future reality, and this is what we talked about last week, that we're waiting for the fulfillment of these things to come when Jesus returns. But while he walked the earth, There were a number of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, right? The themes of healing, of restoration, of bringing that shalom. One of them, you had him go into the well again of Isaiah, Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. It's one of the, what's called the servant songs. These these messages of prophecy that speak to the coming Messiah that come to Jesus. 42, 1 through 4 says this, Behold my servant who I am uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He'll bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now I cite that because in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24, we see this very passage cited quoted, attributing it to Jesus. Now, what do we see Jesus doing in the context there, right, immediately before and immediately following? He's providing grain to his hungry disciples. He's healing a man with a withered hand. He's casting out demons. Jesus is giving a foretaste of that peace, that shalom that was to come. Personally, I think this is really an an important interpretive framework for understanding the miracles, whether it be then or now, right? The miracles of Jesus weren't, you know, meant to be just Jesus arbitrarily throwing his power around. You know, you like, he wasn't channeling Oprah. You get a miracle. You get a miracle. Everybody gets a miracle. I watched that clip again today or this week in preparation. It's just his glorious, glorious day in Oprah history, right? Miracles weren't meant to be an end of themselves, They were places where Jesus was showing his power, his authority to push back the darkness, right? The darkness of sickness, of death, of hunger. Jesus' miracles showed the people that God has come and that God's established his kingdom, right? When you go to buy a house, you pay a down payment. After giving the down payment, you don't immediately own the house, but it's a promissory note. It's saying, I'm capable of paying back this loan and I'm going to make good on it. It's a preview of what is to come. I think in the same way, like Jesus' miracles often are like a down payment. It's a foretaste, showcasing his authority, that final and ultimate healing and deliverance is going to come in the end when God's kingdom comes to earth in its fullness. This is what we see in the ministry of Jesus when he's performing the miracles. That's why Matthew attributes this passage about, you know, bruised reeds and flickering candles. I like the way that Beth Stovall puts it. She says, he's not shouting out in the streets, but he's caring for those who are hurting. 
He's someone who can see that a reed is bruised, a person that is feeling trampled, but he won't let them break. He's someone who holds a person who feels like a tiny candle on the verge of going out, and he won't let their light fade. I don't know if you can resonate with that this morning, feeling trampled, feeling worn out. Jesus won't let you break, won't let your light fade. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, is gentle with the vulnerable. He acknowledges the licks that people have taken as the world's beaten them down, but he's not going to let them break. He showcases a way that is better than the way of the world. He gives of himself to those whom he loves. And he doesn't do it just from a distance. He just doesn't merely, you know, throw miracles around, but he gets in the trenches with us to bring peace. We sang this morning that he knows suffering. Another one of the servant songs is Isaiah chapter 53. This is probably the most famous one, the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Again, this is, take note, this was written about 720 years before Jesus was born. It's pretty, pretty uh, clear in the connection with Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, or by his wounds, we are healed. Very graphic imagery of the piercing of the Messiah, what we know literally to be true in Jesus, pierced on the cross for our sins and transgressions. But that verse continues that the chastisement, the punishment, was upon him that brought us peace. Through his wounds, we've been healed. Through his death on the cross, Jesus brought peace, not just an absence of conflict, but of wholeness and healing. Right? Paul kind of connects the dots nearly 800 years later, Colossians 1, 19 to 20, where he says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This death brought reconciliation to our lives. It brought peace between us and God. Now, we, we might not recognize it. It's very easy for us to go on our li- lives, and kind of lives and not notice this, but we were at war with God. You know, the image that I often like to use is that we're like sailors on a ship, and we don't like the captain's orders, and so we want to call our own shots, and so we stage a mutiny. Jesus, you know what happens if the captain gets wind of a mutiny. Jesus brought peace so that we could be adopted into the family of God, being named co-heirs with him. Think about that. Jesus shares his inheritance with us. But this reconciliation continues. We're reconciled to our brothers and sisters, to our fellow human beings. Paul in Galatians 3 explains that the cross put to death the social hierarchy, that there ought to be equality regardless of your race, regardless of your gender, regardless of your occupation. We're all on an even playing field as followers of Christ. It's inappropriate for us to lord anything over one another. So Jesus has brought about, he's done the cosmic work of bringing peace, and he sacrificed himself in order to bring about that reconciliation, but Jesus doesn't leave us empty-handed. He also gives us his peace. In the upper room discourse, that time that he was with his disciples, that intimate gathering, Jesus encouraged them with messages of peace. There's two passages, two scriptures I want to use. John 14, 27, he says this, Peace I leave to you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. 
And in John 13, 16, 33, he said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Jesus has given us peace. In the second of those passages, he acknowledges that there's going to be tribulation in the world. Suffering's going to persist. But he encouraged us that we shouldn't be afraid, even in our trials. Right? We can be set in the peace of Jesus, knowing that he who is in us is greater than the one who's in the world. I would suggest that as believers, as followers of Jesus, our call has always been to follow in the footsteps, follow in the example of our teacher. And so I think that we can also practice shalom here and now as God's people, right? Because God is in the business of taking, uh, of restoration, of, of taking things that are broken, things that are separated, and bringing healing, bring restoration, fixing, you know, refurbishing things. He doesn't just chuck things and start brand new, but he takes those things and refashions them. We can partner with his work. We can join avenues that bring about healing and wholeness to our world. And so I've got, I've got a few just real practical examples of what this might look like. Okay, just, just to like prime the pump, just to get you started. First is this, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with others. Whether it be your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers. Because, you know, the, 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 one of the primary relationships that Jesus restored was through the cross was our ability to access the Father. As I said a few moments ago, that we were at war with him. And again, maybe it wasn't a war of violence, but it was a rebellion against him. Choosing our path, the way we wanted to live life, and thumbing our nose at God. We don't care what he calls us to. Through Jesus, we've been reconciled to God, and peace in that relationship has been restored. And so we can invite others to experience that same peace with God. Now, I know there's a lot more. You could probably do a whole series on sharing the gospel, evangelism, whatever you want to call it. Because I know this is something many Christians feel intimidated by. But I just want to encourage you. Think about the people in your life who need to hear that gospel. Because right, gospel means good news. What we're sharing ought to be good news to others. Uh, people who might be able to experience his peace. Second is pursuing reconciliation in our relationships. The death of Jesus has ramifications that stretch far and wide. He brought peace to those around us. And so there might be friendships, there might be relationships that feel strained right now. Maybe there's a family member you haven't spoken to in a while because you've been holding on to some sort of grudge. One of the primary ways that we love God is by loving our neighbor our friend, our coworker, our family member as ourselves. Loving other created beings in the image of God. I mean, Jesus said uh, on his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, he said something to the effect of, like, if you're providing an offering to God, right, and if you're committing an act of worship, and you remember that there's a friend of yours that has an ax to grind with you, go take care of that conflict first, and then come back and finish offering this, this worship to God. And again, there's so much more that could be said about the role of grace and forgiveness that's beyond the scope of what, what I'm trying to address this morning. But as I'm talking, it's entirely plausible that the Holy Spirit is bringing to mind someone who you think God might want you to, to provide some reconciliation with. What does it mean to be a peacemaker 
not merely a peacekeeper. You see the difference in those two? I think peacekeeping is kind of peace the way that we think about it in our English language, but peacemaking, being active in that, not just avoiding conflict, I think has to do with, with the peace that God promises in the scriptures. Now, so far, these examples have focused on the individualistic pursuit of God, right? Loving the Lord, and as far as it depends upon you, loving your neighbor, but we also live in a broken world. How can you help to alleviate the suffering of others and bring restoration? Being an ambassador of peace. Maybe this is using your resources to care for those in global poverty, I don't know, it comes to mind organizations like Compassion International have provided safe spaces for children to grow and develop, to receive education, nutrition, emotional support in settings that at times are tumultuous. I mean, in, here in the U.S., you don't have to go very far. There's plenty of evidence of gaps in education, wealth, and the like that have been based upon injustices that are part of our nation's history for many, many years. Just because the, you know, the, the law went away doesn't mean that the ramifications of that have gone away. So one, maybe one action step is educate yourselves on what some of these inequalities are and see how you might be able to be a part of the solution. Right? In the name of Jesus, bringing restoration, using your spheres of influence that you might have. You know, one of the things, one of the elements of, of uh, I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about this this week of, um, the faith of specifically young people, right, millennial, Gen Z, that they've been reclaiming as a part of their faith is a care for the environment. This world has been entrusted to us as its caretakers, right? H- how embarrassing would it be for Jesus to return and what we're handing back to him is a world that was once beautiful and clean, but, you know, now we, we've polluted and treated with contempt. Now, none of us individually can fix the problem, that our world faces, but start small, you know? Find ways to decrease, you know, your single-use plastics like sandwich bags or water bottles. Recognize the need for sustainability in the ways that you shop for your goods, or or maybe think about your goods at all. Like, maybe you don't actually need that product that you want to buy, because if your house is anything like mine, it's going to, you know, maybe sit in a corner, get a little bit of, of use, and then ultimately end up in the garbage can. Now, so, some of these suggestions might be like, how do they even relate? But I would, I would challenge you to read the scriptures and not see them as holistic understandings of how the gospel plays out in our lives. Because unfortunately, we live in a society that often classifies one group of things as spiritual, and you know, things like sharing your faith, forgiveness, grace, and a whole other compartment that we call secular things like caring for the environment. But the Bible doesn't provide any kind of distinctions between those two. All of life is sacred under the glory of God. The book of James reminds us that there needs to be this connection between, you know, what is often perceived as spiritual faith and work. And when he talks about work, it doesn't just mean, you know, going into missions. That's not the work that he's talking about. Because if you read the book of James, it's, it talks often about economic differences, social differences, a lot of those types of things. How are we loving those people that might be different than us? The Advent season, in this season, it provides an opportunity for us to slow down and contemplate the ways in which the world isn't how it ought to be. 
And so may we, as we kind of go around this light in the midst of darkness, may we trust in the Prince of Peace, Jesus, who's initiated that process of cosmic reconciliation. May we rest in him and join with him in bringing healing to this broken world. Here are some some things to think about to reflect on this theme as we, we go about this week. So first is kind of one of a diagnostic question. Again, I'll post these on Facebook and the website tomorrow. Where do you most clearly see the need for Christ's peace to heal a broken world? Again, peace, not just the absence of conflict, but that wholeness of shalom, restoration. Second is this. And I, I like these questions because I'm like a fix-it personality. Sometimes I'm not one, you know, this was one of the early challenges in my marriage with Sarah. She'd come home with like a problem and what she needed was me to validate that. But I'm like, here's what you can do. Don't do that in your marriages. But there are times where it's important to be an ag- agent of change. What is one action item you can take this week to seek shalom in one of the relationships affected by sin, right? So uh, k- kind of just a, an addendum to that. With the fall, most theologians would say that there are four primary relationships that were marred between God and man, God and people, between people and people, between people and themselves, and people and creation. So think about those four categories. Identify one and think about something that you can do to seek, begin that process. Again, joining with God. We don't do it on our own. We work in Christ's power, but joining with what he is doing and what he wants to do in the world. And last is this, meditate on John 14, 27 and 16, 33. Those are those words of peace that Jesus gives his disciples in the upper room. How can you receive, right? Let's read them, meditate on them, allow it to be Jesus speaking directly to you. And how can you receive that peace of Jesus and rest in his faithfulness even when things are hard? Because remember, Jesus shared that at a time where within 48 hours, things are gonna get real dicey for the church, for him, but for his followers as well. So think about that piece. Join me in prayer, and then we'll, we'll close with our, our last song. Lord, we don't have to go very far to see the, the, that cry of Maranatha, Lord, that cry that we just want you to come. Lord, it's a cry of brokenness. It's a cry of despair and desperation. Lord, while we continue to wait, while, while you continue to tarry in your return, Lord, may we rest in your peace and may we see the places, those glimmers where that light is breaking through the darkness. Those glimmers where we can join with what you're doing. That we can be sensitive to your Holy Spirit to, to partner with you, God. To walk in faith. To showcase our faith through our works, our deeds for your kingdom and your glory. In Christ's name, we ask this. Amen.